0: Good morning, Cypress Bible Church. Good to see each one of you this morning. Welcome to the month of August. If you thought it was hot and humid outside, well, we're just getting started. If you are a a first-time visitor here at Cypress Bible Church this morning, we would like to extend a special welcome to you. We are so glad that you joined us this morning. Uh, We would like you to know that we are a church that is all about beginning where you are, becoming more like Jesus. That's our focus. That's our passion. And that's the way we say it, beginning where you are, becoming more like Jesus. And we don't just talk about it, we live into it in three very specific ways. We gather together in life-changing worship, that's what we're doing this morning. We grow together in life-changing truth, and we go together in life-changing mission. Gather, grow, and go. Three ways that we live in uh, to uh, this life that God has called us to, a life of becoming more like Jesus. Well, as we get started here this morning, there are two announcements we want to bring to your attention. Uh, first of all, our care and counseling ministry is expanding. Uh, about, about almost two years ago, we brought on board a licensed professional counselor. Her name uh, is Jennifer Nichols, and she has been seeing numerous clients in that time, and uh, she continues to do so. But we are now bringing on board a second personal, uh, licensed personal counselor, and her name is Christine Hards. Christine is a graduate of Texas A&M, where she did her undergraduate work. Uh, She earned her master's of education in school counseling at Sam Houston State, and she has 10 years of experience in counseling as both in private practice and in public schools. She offers counseling for children ages 10 and up, as well as counseling for individuals, families, and uh, parenting counseling as well. And just so you know, uh, to see one of our counselors here at CBC, the counseling fee is greatly reduced from what you would normally pay to see a licensed professional counselor in a private practice. It is uh, quite a discounted rate. And not only that, but we have a sliding scale discount available as well. So, bottom line, please, please, please don't let financial concerns be a reason for not seeing a counselor. We We really want to make it affordable and we will work with you to make it affordable. Um, So if you are interested in that, whether it's for you or someone in your family, whether that's now or sometime in the future, the first step is always talking to Nancy Gurman in our care and counseling office. Just call up the church during the week, ask for care and counseling, and Nancy will take your information and um, guide you in the next steps to take. And then secondly, this morning, we want to let you know that our Kids Life ministry is getting ready for the school year, and that means they are looking for some volunteers to help them out on Sunday mornings. Uh, This year, there are four specific opportunities uh, to help with Kids Life on a Sunday morning, and we invite you to stop by the Kids Life table in the Commons today to learn more about those. Well, friends, as we prepare to worship God this morning, let's take a moment, let's take a deep breath, let's prepare our hearts for worship, and let us start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we call out to you today and are thankful that you have invited us into relationship with you. What a marvelous thought that the God of the universe, the Almighty God, you have invited us into relationship with you through Christ, that you have invited us to call you Father. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning uh, that our worship would be indeed worship as you understand worship. May it be, as Jesus said, worship in spirit and in truth. And in the midst of our worship today, may we encounter you, and may we leave here today changed people for having encountered you. In the songs that we sing and in the preaching of your word, we pray that we would be people who think more like Jesus thinks, that we pray more like Jesus prayed, that we love more like Jesus loves And that in every way, indeed, we would be people who worship you with our entire lives. And that in so doing, we would be people who are becoming more like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture.
1: Would you sing with us this morning?
2: We stand and lift up our hands For the joy of the Lord we bow down and worship him now. How great, how awesome.
1: together as one, and we do it with boldness, we do it with gladness, and we are able to do that with confidence, because of Jesus Christ, our hope. We're going to sing this together this morning. Would you sing with me? In Christ alone,
2: my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving ceases, my comfort. My all in all, here in the love of Christ, I'll stand. Power of Christ in me, from life's first stride to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pull me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand.
1: The wonders cross.
2: When I survey the
1: We thank you for the wonderful cross on which you died for our sins. And we proclaim the great glory of God who raised him from the dead on the third day that we might have hope eternal. God, we worship you and we honor you in this moment in the name of Jesus. Amen. Don't maybe see it.
3: I guess that was the church bell ringing. Um, Today, we're going to take a look at really one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and it is just packed full of deep theological content. So I'm going to have a little bit more words on the screen than normal. One of the things I love about this church is when I teach and I use uh, these PowerPoints, I'll see people getting their phones up and taking a picture of it, and that's how I know, oh, I did a good slide. And I have to admit to you, before three years ago, I never preached with PowerPoint. So this is a whole new thing, um, learning how to use um, this type of visual um, presentation along with uh, preaching a message. So I pray that today that as You see things on the screen as you hear things from my mouth, as the Word of God is read and talked about and proclaimed, that it will have a life changing effect on you. And so that's a lot to ask in less than 30 minutes, but we are men and women who are called by Christ, and we know and we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Word that changes us. And His Word can change us instantaneously. And that's just part of the beauty and wonder of following Christ. So would you just pray with me and ask Him to speak to our hearts today? Dear Jesus, we come here as Your people wanting to hear from You. And that You would speak to us some of the deepest truths of Your gospel and how you make us right with the Father. It is the most beautiful thing in the world to know that we can freely walk into the courts of heaven, and there we find grace, we find acceptance, and we find approval with the Father. And it is all because of you, Jesus, for what you did on that wondrous cross. Bless us today with your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Galatians chapter 2 here. This is the major confrontation between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. And this is happening somewhere around 47 AD, might be 48, right before the Jerusalem Council of 49. And um, Paul's writing his letter after his first missionary trip to. Uh, Galatia, which is southern, central, modern-day Turkey. He went to several cities there in that area and came back to Antioch. So this is a confrontation between Paul and Peter that happens in the city of Antioch, which is present-day Syria. And um, the, uh, the church in Antioch is where they were first called Christians, and it's where a lot of Gentiles are now becoming Christians, and they're going through this process of assimilation. How do believing Jewish people and how do believing Gentile people all get along? So, let's take a look at the text. When Cephas, oh and by the way, whenever it refers to Peter as Cephas, it means he's in sin. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James... He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. Okay, so here's what we have here. This is the setting, this is the confrontation, and we see where they're at, they're in Antioch, and Paul had to oppose him to his face because what we're going to learn here is what's at stake is not just a microaggression. It is not just an interpersonal difference. No, this is affecting not just the church there in Antioch, but Paul understands that this is going to be the signature issue that's going to separate Christians until today. This issue that's at stake here. Is still having its ramifications through Christian churches throughout the world. Okay, it is the most essential issue confronting our understanding of the work of Christ on our behalf. And so Paul has to do this publicly because even Barnabas, who's a huge leader in the church, he's being led astray. And so this, this is a very serious issue. And we see that there's this group of people that came from James, from Jerusalem which was kind of the capital of Christianity at the time, and James is Jesus' brother. But we don't think that these men are following out the instructions James gave to them, but they're there to kind of make sure that everything goes just right. And they're Jewish believers, but they're part of this circumcising group that Paul calls the Judaizers, that want to say, if you want to be a good Christian, you have to observe the law. That means all of your men have to be um, circumcised. That means you have to grow your beards long. That means you have to keep kosher. You have to do all these things. And the Gentiles found all those things revolting. Okay, That's part of the history between the Jews and the Gentiles is the way they lived their life was just very differently, and they differed on these things. And so now they're being told you have to keep kosher in order to be a good Christian. And so it's causing what you would expect is some real troubles there. And, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, when I'm trying to join a group or something, I might want to join like a country club or something like that, but I'm not really wanting to join a group of people that make their identity because they've been circumcised. That seems a little weird to me. Okay, that was just a little bit of comedy. You can laugh at that. Thank you. Um, And so what's going on here is the church is being led astray, and the issue here is faith versus works. How does faith and how do good works interact? And we have some denominations today that will say, you must have good works and faith in order to be saved, okay? And that's a really big denomination that's been around um, since the time of Peter, okay? Then what happens, though, in the Protestant world is will say, oh yeah, you have to come by faith totally, you have to come to Christ and believe and it's totally by faith, but then you have to do a lot of good works to prove that you were saved, and the Christian life really is about doing all these good works. One way or another, Christians end up getting a warped view of works and how it relates to the justifying work of Christ. And so that's what we're going to uncover here, and um, we're all going to be the better for it. Okay, so as I said, what's at stake is the future of the church, and it's so important because we're either going to be a religion of do's and don'ts rather than a faith that is personal in Christ. Okay, That is one of the beauties of Christianity is it's so intensely personal. i want to point out some of the words that Paul uses here in this text that it, it, it's very clear that the work of Jesus is, on the cross was intensely personal for Him, and it should be intensely personal for you as well. Christ calls us into an intimate, personal relationship with Him and the Father. And to make the point, one of my favorite stories of C.S. Lewis is while he was there at Oxford, he came into a meeting that was going on, and a number of his friends who were all department chairs and so forth They're having a conversation. They said, oh, Jack, come on in. We're having a discussion on what's the differences between all the major religions because we all think they're the same because they all have some sort of holy scripture. They all have a belief in God. They all have some type of a worship practice. They all have like an ethic and a moral code that they're supposed to live by. It seems like all Christianities are the same. What's the difference with Christianity? How is it any different? And, of course, C.S. Lewis says, oh, that's easy. Grace. No other religion has a doctrine of grace. No other religion has God himself paying for the sins of the people. And so that's what's at stake here. That's why Christianity is so incredibly different. And if we lose the doctrine of justification of how Jesus justifies us, the, the principal article of our faith is lost. So, and besides, nobody wants to go to church where they have a nun like that pointing at them, but some of you had, went to church, went to school like that, and you remember it well. So here's what's going on. Peter is engaged in five different sins as I count them, but notice, did Paul point out any of these sins? No, he didn't. You're going to see him say something really remarkable. So, Here's, Paul's, here's Peter's big sins. These are biggies, by the way. Remember, in Acts chapter 10, God spoke to Peter in a vision and said, all things are clean to eat. Go ahead and eat with the Gentiles. So now, this might be a couple years later, he's now disobeying the direct command of God in his life. Okay, guys, that's a huge, big, no-no sin. It's really bad. Okay? Matter of fact, I doubt any of you have committed a sin like this, where God spoke to you in a revelatory vision about the nature of of the church and you went back on it. This is a huge sin. Okay. Um, second, it's idolatry, right? He's over prioritizing kosher and what you eat because that's what he did he he stopped eating with the gentile christians that is a direct like i'm not going to fellowship with you you're below me you're beneath me i'm not even going to talk to you It's total mean girl approach in the church third it's the sin of racism okay he is subordinating the race of others below him he's saying because i'm jewish because i was born of a jewish woman i'm better than you that's racism and it demeans the other person as being made in God's image. Now, we could have a 30-minute sermon now on on race issues, right? Because that's been predominating our country for the last several years, and everybody's upset about it, but we see that it even exists back then. Fourth, hypocrisy, right? The hypocrisy, and it even says that here in the text, is that he's bearing false witness against the gentile believers and then he coveted coveted the esteem of these powerful judaizers who were sent from the mother church in jerusalem and so he wants their acceptance it's peer pressure he's coveting their approval there's only one person's approval you need to covet and that is the approval of jesus christ and by faith in him you have it therefore you don't need anybody's approval Right. Remember, did your father say something to you like mine did? Is, gee, David, if everybody's jumping off a cliff, are you going to do it too? Right. No, you don't live by man's approval. All right. And I put a little question down there: Should a be should a pastor be disqualified for these? I think most of you would say yes. But does Peter get disqualified? No, because he repents. He repents. Okay, so here we go Galatians 2:14. This is like the kind of where everything begins to pivot and we get we see what happens here in this confrontation. When I saw that when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas in front of them all, "You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs?" Does he Do you think the Apostle Paul knew those five sins that he broke from the Ten Commandments? Yeah, he does. But does he hold those out against him to condemn him? No, he doesn't. So we're learning something about how to confront people and how to go about gospel-centered confrontation and and, and, and resolving conflict. He he sees that he is not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. What's most important to Paul is that the believer lives his life as a response to the gospel of Jesus. Not that you're trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Not that the commandments are wrong. We're going to see there's nothing bad about the commandments. Okay? But the most important thing for the believer in Christ is you live your life in accordance to what the gospel is. So what does this mean? It's obviously the standard by well, how you should be determining your spiritual health. I mean, if, if, you, if you steal something, like a pen at the office and bring it home, are you getting yourself all upset? Oh my gosh, I broke the Ten Commandments. I'm a bad human being. I, you know, I, I, I brought a pen home, a 50-cent pen from the office. And do you condemn yourself? No, what you should say is, oh, I brought this pen home from work and the gospel would tell me that I should take it back to work. Okay, great. I'm freed up to go take it back. What a difference in living. And so this is what Paul's getting at here. And so he doesn't condemn him because he's more concerned about us keeping in line with the gospel. Okay, And that becomes, what is your motivation for living? Are you living based on on the law and trying to strictly keep the law and just do what's right? Or are you living out of grace? Christ died for me. Christ loves me. I have all the acceptance of approval from the Father in heaven that I could ever dare want or dream of, and I'm just going to live in a response to his grace. And I'm going to fill myself up with his grace, and I'm going to live out of his grace, and when I make a mistake, I'm going to admit it, and I'm going to make it right. That's a Two vastly different ways of living. So, Peter's not living this way. He's living out of the fear of man. Oh, these Judaizers! They came in from Jerusalem. Ah, I better do what they say. They're smarter than me. They know better. False. Okay, so here's what I mean by the gospel-centered life. That's the title of this sermon. The gospel is a phrase that we often use without full understanding. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right, from Romans 1. It's to be applied to every aspect of your life. The gospel is not simply the door to salvation, but it is what transforms us. Remember, um, I love the way Nathan does his Greek, our, our mission or our motto of our church, which is beginning where you are, becoming more like Jesus. Well, how do you get from here to here? It's by the transformation of the gospel. It is the power of God that transforms us. It frees us from the power of sin, and it allows us then to delight in the Lord and living for God. So the gospel is what is to animate our life and our living, and we believe that the gospel changes everything. It changes every aspect of our life. So let's just take a quick look at how many of you have somebody in your life that with, and there are some relationships that you can make right in one simple sitting down and just kind of ironing it out. There's other relationships in our life that can be really conflicted, and it can go on for a, for, it can go on for years before you finally get it resolved, right? Fortunately here, this is like a 23-minute sitcom, and it gets resolved pretty quickly. However, the church struggles with this issue forever, right? It's still an issue that we struggle with. But look at Paul's methodology. He addressed the matter directly. He did it face-to-face. He asked questions. So if you're having a conflict with somebody, it's better to say, so I'm a little confused why you did this or say this. Could you explain it to me? Right? Not, hey, you hurt my feelings, and you cussed, and you're bad. right? That's that's condemning. That's putting somebody under the law. So what Paul does, he asks questions. He allows dialogue. He allows the person to give reason for why he's doing what he's doing. And the goal is ultimately the gospel and God's glory and to be reconciled. And he basically gives us these guidelines a little bit later on in the book of Galatians. He says, gently restore the person. Watch yourself. Don't be tempted. Feel the other person's burden. Avoid being arrogant and test your motive in your words. And we see Paul doing that here with Peter. So this is just a good guideline for you in how to be more Christ-centered, gospel-centered, in resolving conflict in your own lives. So that's a practical point from what we've just seen here today. But let's jump into the deep, rich theology of the text. Here's what's at stake. Paul then gives the explanation to Peter why his behavior is so bad. It's because it strikes at the doctrine of justification. He says here, we, to to, to Peter and the whole group, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, I don't know if I'm a Gentile, I'm feeling kind of bad here, um, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So try as much as you want to keep the law and do everything it says. You will not be justified. No one ever has been. No one ever will be. Only one person satisfied the demands of the law. His name is Jesus and he did it for all of us. So that's the point of justification. Here's a little bit more in understanding what justification is. He used it three times in that verse. You're going to see he's going to use it one more time, a fourth time in verse verse 17. But he he makes it really clear that we're justified by faith in Christ, and the Protestant church for the last 500 years has, has put a little word after that. Alone. None of your works... You know, go to Ephesians 2, eight. for you have been saved by grace through faith and not of any works of your own. Okay, it's the clear teaching of Scriptures. And so it's by faith in Christ that you are saved. And so that's how you are justified. And justified is a legal term and it means to have right standing in a courtroom. And it literally means to be declared innocent or righteous in God's courtroom. So that's why you continue to sin as a Christian. Your sin nature hasn't been done away with. But in God's courtroom, because you've placed trust in Christ, you've been declared righteous. Meaning all of the goodness of Jesus is now uh, uh, imputed to you. It's credited to your bank account with the Father. And so when the Father looks at you, he sees the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus. And therefore, if you're trying to make yourself look better and trying to get the Father's approval by, see, look how good I'm doing here keeping your law, he doesn't notice it. Because he's like, the work of my son on the cross was sufficient. And you need to rest in that, and you need to believe it. And that's what we mean by believing the gospel. Okay, and and like I said, this changed the church 500 years ago. Now, To really understand it, now, I just need to let you know, you know, four years of seminary at Dallas Seminary, I had 20 of those 120 credits in church history and historical theology. So I've read just about every statement there is on the doctrine of justification. Okay? I'm sure there's a few I haven't read, but I've pretty much read them all. This is probably the best statement of all on it. Okay? If you're unfamiliar with it, I'm glad to be the person to introduce it to you. Written nearly 500 years ago in Germany. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace... God grants in credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, all I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. I don't know of a sweeter, more beautiful explanation of what Paul is getting at outside of the scriptures than this. And let me just pause right here and say, if you've never come to trust in Jesus Christ and you never knew how freely he forgives you, why don't you do that right now? Why don't you just say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I'm tired of trying to prove how good I am. And I want the approval of my Father in heaven and I want your love. Just go ahead and do that. And to you, Christian, maybe you've been struggling all these years as a Christian, trying to be perfect. Why don't you just confess that it's foolishness and ask the Lord Jesus to fill you with his grace and that you would live simply as a response to his love and his grace. And let that be your animating motivation for living the Christian life. So Christianity would become devotedly legalistic if this isn't dealt with. And it's not that there's anything wrong with doing these things. It's this mindset that's wrong. The thinking and believing by doing these things, you're making yourself right in the eyes of God. That's what's bad about legalism. Avoid the trap of it. It says, if I do these things then God is pleased with me, I have a right standing in the court. He approves of me. No. He approves of you already if you've placed your faith in Christ. You can do nothing more to earn his acceptance or earn his approval. All of your good works, matter of fact, what many theologians have said is that to think that your good works adds to your salvation is to actually insult the work of Christ. Because what you're saying is that the precious blood of Jesus wasn't satisfactory to save you. That Jesus needs your added help. That is entirely insulting thinking to the Lord. His precious blood is of infinite value and it was shed to save you. And so let's worship him for this. The the Ten Commandments are simply our tutor. And they tell us, no, you're not going to be able to keep it, but here's what God's holy standards are. And so, A response to grace is, like I said earlier, if you take something or steal something, yeah, oh, this is wrong, I shouldn't do this, let me make it right. You respond that way. Or, gee, no, you know what, I'm not going to steal from somebody because if I need something, I'm going to ask the Lord for it. And I'm going to wait for Him to provide it. Okay, And I know He'll provide it because He loves me. Jesus has already died for me. He's not going to allow me to be in need of something that I, I, I must have in order to live. So that's the difference. Now, here's what we do today. So don't think that you know that, that, that legalism is just not an issue uh, that was 2,000 years ago and, and just trying to be kosher. No. Here's what we do as modern Christians. Now, these are two door greeters at a vineyard church. Now, I need to let you know that two of my favorite people in this church are our door greeters. Okay, Linda at that door and Christy at that door. And they don't stand there at the door and greet you because they feel like they're checking a box of righteousness. No, they're standing there because they're so amazed by the love that they've received and the grace they've received through Christ that when you come into this church, they want to greet you in the name of Jesus. They want you to know that He loves you. And so that's being motivated by the gospel. But here's what we say to be a good Christian. You have to do all these things and check all these boxes. And that makes you a good Christian. Now, is there anything wrong with any of these things? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I believe if you watch too many R-rated movies, you'll probably start using a lot of bad words and you'll start having an unbiblical view of human sexuality. It's probably not the best thing to watch. Okay? Um, Should you smoke? Probably not, unless you want to have a shorter lifespan. Okay? Should you go on a mission trip? Absolutely. Tim Weaver's going to Sri Lanka this week. That's awesome. Let's pray for him. Um, you know, I mean, should you think abortion's wrong? Yeah, it's stopping a human heartbeat, right? We're conceived by God in the womb, so. But, but that doesn't make you a good or bad Christian in doing these things. Okay. It's and, and there's nothing wrong with these things, but these don't earn you any sort of a, more approval with God. Now, I'm going to poke a little fun here, and what I'm trying to show you here is that the source of legalism is human pride. Okay? Why do Christians get legalistic? It's because they have a pride issue. Their pride issue is look at me. I did something really good. That's pride. Okay? If you don't believe in God, you still have a pride issue and you have to say, look at me. I did something good. Don't you approve? Aren't I accepted? Aren't I wonderful? I don't have a teacher or a coacher anymore to say, well done, student, way to go, player. So, if you don't believe in God, this is what you think makes you a righteous person. Do you see the similarities? One is trying to be righteous to get God's approval. The other one is being righteous to get the world's approval. Okay, and, 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 and you'll notice I kind of lined them up that they're all kind of just opposite of each other. Some thought went into the slides. Okay, so let's finish this thing up. Okay, I, I just want to blow through this, okay, because here's Paul just building an argument saying, this is why, because you were Jewish, you shouldn't go back to trying to keep the law. He says, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we're... We Jews also, among the sinners, the Gentiles, doesn't mean that, we, that that Christ promotes sin. Absolutely not. Remember, Jesus hung out with sinners. He ate and drank with them. Okay? You, don't, you don't become sinful because you're around sinful people. Sin comes from within. You have a sin problem. If I rebuild what I destroyed by living by the law, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Verse 19 is key there. He's saying, look, we were all good Jews. Trying to keep the law was absolutely exhausting, and I just died to it. But the goal is not to keep the law. The goal is to live for God. That's godliness. Godliness is not keeping the rules. Godliness is living for God. So that's his argument here to why we need to move on from legalism. Now, I want to wrap up here with what he says here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Remember when I said that the Christian faith for Paul is intensely personal? I have been crucified with Christ. Wait a second. On that cross on Calvary, on that Friday in 33 A.D., Jesus was crucified to the cross. He was nailed to the cross. Um, they nailed a sign to the cross and it said, here is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was nailed to the cross. And then uh, the scripture says that our sins, the sins of, of the world, the sins of the church, were of all believers, were, they were nailed to the cross. All of our sins were nailed there. The scripture declares that. Now Paul is saying... He was also crucified there? Okay, the point here that he is making is that your identity as a follower of Jesus is wrapped up in the work of Jesus on the cross. Your whole identity is being crucified with Jesus. You live from that. I remember when I interviewed for the position here three or four years ago, and um, I was asked by the elder, so Dave, you know, just tell us how you kind of view Christian, your Christian life. And I said, I, I prayed to receive Christ August 16th, 1982. And every day I get up and I just can't get over the fact that Jesus would die for me. Okay, amazing love. How can it be? that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me. Amazing love. How can it be that I should gain? Right? So you just don't get over it. You shouldn't. And if, and if, you, if, you, if you found yourself in that situation, here's what Martin Luther says. Beat the gospel into your head daily. <laughs> right? Remind yourself, no, I am justified in Christ. Christ did the work for me. He loves me, and he gave himself up for me. So the implications of the gospel, it affects every aspect of your life. There's not a part of your life that the animating aspect and power of the gospel should not be affecting you. And he then says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Okay. So we don't set aside The grace of God. So, this is one of my favorite sayings. Cheer up. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your depression, in the midst of your fears, in the midst of your confusion of life, cheer up. Why? Because you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. Trust me, your sins are so bad. They're so scarlet. Your sins are so ugly. They really are. Okay? We're all ugly, nasty sinners. Okay? And once you can accept that, then you're, you're like happy about the gospel. <laughs> right? But you're more loved by your Heavenly Father than you ever dared hope. Why? Because Christ. Because you were crucified with Christ. And that is the good news of the gospel. Don't set aside the grace. Live it out because He is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. So what's the takeaway from today? What's the practical aspect of living? You know, be gospel centered put Christ first in everything that you do. And, that, and I'm not saying that to you legalistically either. <laughs> right? I'm saying as a response of love and faith, put Christ first. And you will then know what to do and what to say wherever you go because Christ will be with you and you'll be living out of the abundance of his love and his grace. And that's his desire and his design for your life. So let's now change gears, and move towards the Lord's table. And one of the things I'd like us to do is as we come to the table, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, Paul says that when we come to the Lord's table, we're to come in a manner of, of, of searching ourselves and examining ourselves. So we're going to just pray a part of Psalm 51 here and just confess our sins to the Lord. Um, it's going to come up on the screen here. And you can either say this along with me out loud, or you can say it quietly, or you can just meditate on it as I, as I read it. There's going to be two slides of it. But make this the confession of your heart that you're recognizing that you're a sinner in need of God's grace as we come to his table. Because his table reminds us of his cross and his work on our behalf. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you alone have I sinned, and done what is evil. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We ask for forgiveness of our sins through Christ our Savior. Amen. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, and do this in remembrance of me. So if you would, open up the top part of your container, you'll find the wafer, and allow me to pray over it and bless it before we partake. Lord Jesus, we partake humbly, knowing that it was your body that was broken for us on the cross. It was not our work, but your work. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you would go and suffer on our behalf. And therefore, Lord, we partake of this in faith. Please partake. Hear now the rest of the institution of the Lord's Supper, and I will pray for the cup as well before we partake of the cup. In the same way, the Lord Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim my death until I return. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you shed your blood on our behalf. And we partake of this wine, and it is sweet to us, but it was bitter for you. And we thank you that you have paid the price of our salvation through your blood, and we give you praise and glory for rescuing us. Amen. Please partake. If you would, please stand to worship the Lord.
1: This part of our service is uh, generally titled Responding to God, and we do that with a song. But this morning, um, I'm gonna encourage you uh, to respond um, in a way that you feel is appropriate in this moment, which may mean that uh, you may pray where you are, you may ask someone close to pray with you. You may sing this song, or you may let the words marinate in your mind instead of your mouth. But we encourage you to respond to God as you are led this morning. conclude our service singing this song together. I do invite you to sing with us together of Jesus the Messiah. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness.
3: grace of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you today and forevermore. Amen.